The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthad.com.au. Hello and welcome to Health Ads Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. It is Thursday, the 28th of April. Professor Nancy Baxter explains recent COVID developments that are crucial to your practice. Nancy will discuss the new variants that are emerging and making their way to Australia, particularly XE2, BA4 and BA5. Welcome everyone. Um, Today we're gonna be giving a COVID update. Um, I'm Nancy Baxter. I'm the head of the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health at University of Melbourne. And I am greeting you from the ancestral uh, lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation who have been custodians of this part of um, Australia for thousands of years and many generations. I pay respect to their elders past and present and look forward to our shared future together. Well, today I'm going to talk just a little bit about where we are at the status of the outbreak currently, um, some some information about boosters, uh, oral treatment, and then I'm going to speak about long COVID. So a a bit of an overview of of what's going on right now with COVID. Um, So just in terms of the uh, outbreak status, um, you know, the outbreak is is having less salience in the media, but I'm sure all of you are uh, well and truly still, um, still immersed in the outbreak with your patients. Um, it is it is not over yet. Uh, and what we know is that we've had the two Omicron waves with high numbers of cases. So we had the BA1 wave uh, and the BA2 wave. Uh, fortunately, um, we have, although we've experienced a high number of hospitalizations with the second Omicron wave, uh, it hasn't reached the same peak as the first uh, Omicron wave did, and um, neither have the, um, uh, the ICU admissions. So we are getting through um, the second Omicron wave. Uh, it is stressing our healthcare system still, particularly because uh, our healthcare systems have uh, uh, in New South Wales and Victoria been under su- such stress and strain for, for a prolonged period of time. But we are getting through those waves. Um, uh, but the question is, of course, what's in the future? I'd like to take us back a little bit to talk about uh, how we were predicting the outbreak would go at this point. And this is from the Doherty modeling uh, of the Delta outbreak. This was the update uh, in September uh, of 2021 um, during the Delta outbreak uh, in New South Wales and Victoria. 
And here uh, we see the prediction of deaths uh, for the first 20, uh, 240 days uh, when uh, we were at 80% vaccination uh, and would be relaxing uh, restrictions and protections. And what we saw was the estimate was that there would be um, uh, 6,800 deaths with 80% eligible vaccinated. Well, we know that we're much higher than that. We're over 95% eligible vaccinated. Um, but we have experienced a substantial number of deaths. So this shows April 22nd uh, of this year. Uh, we've had a total of deaths in Australia of almost 7,000. And we look at from the time period where things actually started, restrictions started relaxing in the major states uh, around the end of October. Uh, we've actually had uh, you know, a substantial number of deaths in that time period. And this is well on track to exceed the, the um, the 6,800 uh, that we would have anticipated with the Delta outbreak as per the, um, the uh, Doherty modeling at, at, a much, at a significantly lower rate of vaccination. So this indicates that things uh, definitely have progressed in terms of the outbreak uh, uh, at, a, at a, a greater burden um, to people in terms of morbidity and mortality than would have been expected from the Doherty outbreak, despite the Omicron wave being responsible for most of this and it being considered uh, mild. Um, certainly it's not mild and it's no flu. So this just shows in comparison uh, the uh, annual uh, influenza deaths from the flu, where it's a, a very bad year if we have over 1,000 influenza deaths in a year in Australia. We're now on track to have about 10,000 deaths from uh, COVID uh, in this year, in 2022, making it uh, one of the top uh, killers of Australians this year. So this is not the flu, it remains not the flu. Um, so fortunately, we do seem to be uh, at the at the downward. We seem to have reached our peak of our second wave of Omicron, and we seem to come be coming down from that. Uh, as you can see towards the right of, of this, um, the numbers are stabilizing. The challenge here is we're also relaxing all non-pharmacological interventions, and so the concern is that we're going to have a plateau, a plateau at a high rate of cases, which will mean that there's an ongoing burden uh, of on the hospitalizations uh, uh, of, of hospitalizations and deaths, uh, and a, a really heavy burden on general practice in terms of patients coming in with symptoms. Um, and then we have winter coming. So we have this plateau of high cases, uh, and then we have the winter season. Now, from the Northern Hemisphere, we know that even when things had, had been relatively stable in their summer, last year of 2021, when winter started, um, their, the, their number of cases started increasing. And that was prior to uh, the, the Omicron wave. So things had been relatively stable in places like Denmark uh, over their summer with, uh, with Delta, and then started taking off again uh, as winter months uh, came. Uh, and this is, uh, there are a number of reasons for this. There may be some biologic uh, reasons with respect to the virus and aerosolization of the virus, but mainly it's behavioral. So people are going indoors more, uh, their socialization happens indoors, mixing and mingling. Uh, the air, uh, you know, there's less ventilation. Uh, and so there's an increased opportunity for, um, for COVID to transmit. So we'd expect that the number of cases may go up driven by just the uh, fact that we're going into winter. Um, but actually, it's very, very difficult to predict because layered on to this is that, um, you know, our booster rates are slowly increasing and that does provide some um, uh, protection against transmission, particularly early on after, um, after the booster. But 
equally people who were boosted um, early uh, when boosters were first available, their protection against transmission is actually waning. Um, so hard to predict what's going to happen there. Similarly, we know that there's substantial convalescent immunity. Um, so all the people that got Omicron in that wave, uh, first wave and the second wave, uh, will have uh, protection uh, against um, uh, severe disease and hospitalization, uh, and they will also have prote protection from transmission. Um, but the protection against transmission will be waning from the first wave. You know, we're more than three months now from our first wave of BA1, and so we'd expect uh, that that um, protection from transmission to be waning. So again, hard to know what's going to happen as we get into winter. Also, we've had relaxation of almost all uh, non-pharmacologic interventions, and uh, our test trace system is non-existent. Uh, we're also starting to allow household contacts to not have to isolate. So it's unclear how much that's going to drive transmission. Um, it's unlikely there'll be another major peak, but uh, the, the question is how high will the plateau of cases be over this time period? And then we have the new Omicron subvariants and possibly even a development in the future of a variant. And then finally, in terms of just overall how our health systems will, um, uh, will perform over or, or the stress that our, our healthcare systems will sustain over the winter months will depend on what the flu season will be like. And that, as you know, is always somewhat unpredictable. Um, so what about the new subvariants and how much do we have to worry? So, you know, we, we didn't think that we'd need to worry about a subvariant uh, after this the huge BA1 wave we had with a peak of cases at a really astronomical number. And yet we did. So BA2 came, it was more transmissible, and it did create, it is creating uh, a challenge for our healthcare systems. Well, what are the new Omicron subvariants? So Omicron is really spreading uh, what continues to be quite, uh, quite uh, prevalent throughout the world. Uh, overall, in the world, case numbers do seem to be, to be declining, but there are a lot of people infected with Omicron right now. And when there are a lot of people infected with COVID, it means there's, there's a lot of opportunity for new uh, subvariants to arise. So the new subvariants are, that we know of currently, they're, they're all descendant from Omicron. Um, first, we have BA4 and BA5. So these are new subvariants that have been identified primarily uh, or characterized primarily in South Africa. And they rapidly um, have become the predominant strains in South Africa, going from about 5% to 50% of strains in a month. Um, so that's remarkable growth and indicates that these have some type of uh, growth advantage over, over the um, BA1 and 2 that were in South Africa. They share a mutation at L452, uh, which uh, is associated with immune invasion in other, uh, other um, uh, variants. Uh, and so that might be what's giving it the growth advantage. Uh, it has been identified in wastewater in Victoria, but there is no evidence of an increased virulence of this at, at the current time. The next is Omicron XC, and this is actually a recombinant um, virus. So we know that if an individual is infected with two, two variants, or in this case subvariants, that you can have a recombination of the two uh, and end up developing a, a different uh, um, subvariant. Um, and uh, Omicron XC, there are a few others. Uh, have been 
found in the community, and actually there's been community transmission in a number of countries. It has been detected in a traveler in New South Wales and may have about a 10% growth advantage over BA2. Uh, it has a spike protein similar to BA2, so we're not anticipating more severe disease than we have with BA2. Finally, the, the newest subvariant that people are talking about is BA2.12.1, uh, almost certainly to get uh, almost certain to get another designation sometime soon. But this is the one that was first identified in northeast uh, the the northeast U.S. and is a really rapidly increasing both in the U.S. and India. Has been identified in multiple countries and is sure to come to Australia given its very rapid spread globally. It again has a mutation in the spike protein at that immune evasive uh, uh, codon. Um, and it seems to have between a 30% and, and an astronomical 90% advantage over existing Omicron uh, variants, uh, which is remarkable, um, uh, making it an extraordinarily infectious variant. Now, it's unclear how much of that is to inherent increased transmissibility of BA2.12.1, and how much of that is uh, in part because the immunity um, in, um, in the U.S. from the Omicron first wave is now starting to wane to transmission. So we're now getting, um, they, had a, they had a huge uh, Omicron wave, a BA1 wave in the U.S., but they really didn't have as large a, a, a BA2 second wave of Omicron. They're just getting into their second wave of Omicron now. So it appears that BA2.12.1 is taking over from BA2, uh, and that may be why they're, why they're showing such a rapid um, growth advantage of this subvariant, simply because, you know, in, in other jurisdictions, we may not see it because we have more, um, more immunity related to the second wave of BA2. Um, there's been no evidence of increased virulence. But again, all these more transmissible variants, I think, are going to lead to potentially more, more small waves and this plateau of cases at a very high rate. Again, a much higher rate than predicted in our previous modeling. And even if it's less severe, uh, we've seen what a large number of cases can do in terms of the impact on the healthcare system and the impact on people. Um, one of the big questions is reinfection and reinfection with Omicron. So we know Omicron uh, is immune evasive, so it's more able to, um, to get around our immunity from vaccines, but also convalescent immunity. So this is some data from the UK looking at the percentage of um, all cases of uh, COVID that were reinfected, reinfections, and um, the blue bars are the reinfections. You see a, a low rate of reinfection um, prior to the Omicron wave. After the Omicron wave, the, the uh, percentage of infections that are reinfections in the UK has been uh, consistently uh, at about 10%, uh, and actually recently it's been higher, up to 14% of people presenting with COVID are actually presenting with a reinfection. Now, some of those, um, most of those are going to be reinfection from previous Delta, uh, Alpha, and, uh, and uh, Wuhan strain uh, in the UK because they've had considerable amounts of, uh, of COVID in the past. In Australia, uh, more the question is what's going to happen with subsequent Omicron waves if you've had an infection with Omicron? How evasive is Omicron to Omicron? How evasive, uh, how much can BA2 evade immunity we've developed through BA1?
Well, um, what what we information we have is from Denmark, and it's from very early in um, the BA2 outbreak. Uh, and so within the first 60 days of the BA1, BA2 outbreak that occurred, um, very, uh, so the BA1 outbreak started in Denmark and then very quickly it was taken over from BA2. So they were almost one peak. So they were able to look at this quite early, uh, earlier than, than, than we, we, are, we were only able to look at this kind of data now uh, and in the near future. But what they showed uh, was that actually BA2 reinfection was a low risk within the first 60 days of a BA1 infection. Not no risk, but low risk. Um, but the question now is whether as we move forward, um, whether we'll have, um, what will happen uh, as we have waning immunity. So we know that immunity to transmission wanes, uh, uh, particularly um, uh, more so than for uh, hospitalization and death after both vaccination and uh, convalescent immunity after, after you've had COVID. But the question is, uh, does this pattern differ for Omicron than for other, uh, other variants of COVID? Uh, does Omicron stimulate the same uh, degree of um, uh, immunity as other uh, other variants uh, did? So um, can, can Omicron evade itself better than uh, other variants might be able to? Um, so that's a question, and we don't know. Certainly anecdotally, I'm sure many of you have had patients or experienced yourself and your family and friends that many people are now reporting um, second infections with Omicron. Uh, and we know that can happen, although the recommendations are not to retest for 12 weeks. We know that reinfection with COVID can happen in a shorter time period, although less likely. Um, so I think we're going to be seeing uh, in the next few months, we're going to have more data to know exactly how important reinfection with Omicron is, and that will help determine how, uh, how our winter is going to be. So again, another variable that is difficult to predict. Um, the good news being, though, that uh, these people, uh, people who've been infected with Omicron should have some, um, some increase in their immunity to hospitalization, death, and severe, severe illness, even if their immunity to transmission has waned. So um, Omicron subvariants are unlikely to be a game changer. Um, they may well uh, result in prolonged stress to the healthcare system and obviously have a, a major impact on the lives of people who develop COVID and, and their, uh, their carers. Um, but that's not necessarily going to result in a huge spike, something that kind of uh, really challenges the system in, in a way like Omicron did or Delta did. Um, but there may still be a game changer. And these are new variants that occur. And what we found with new variants is that they don't tend to kind of follow a pathway. Um, so Delta doesn't birth, didn't, didn't birth Omicron. Alpha didn't birth Delta. So it, it doesn't kind of follow a um, evolutionary path that goes from uh, the last variant to the next variant. What seems to happen is that um, a, a, a previous variant, uh, uh, mutates uh, and uh, develops an, a new variant that is quite uh, distinctly different from the variants in circulation. And this may be one of the ways that that happens. So this is from the, a recent article from the Times that showed there was a British patient uh, who had tested positive for COVID for 505 days. So this person had a persistent COVID infection for 505 days. And so the thinking is that what happens here is uh, as um, 
uh, as the, the, the patients try to mount immune responses, as they're given medications, et cetera, the virus learns uh, to become more immune evasive. These are usually patients with uh, uh, some immunocompromising conditions, so they're just unable to clear this virus, and the virus continues to learn how to evade uh, all the things we throw at it uh, um, to, uh, to um, to persist in terms of its infection of that individual, and that there may well be, and and, and there may well be have, have been spread, leading to these new variants that have come from this type of thing, a prolonged in, infection in an immunosuppressed patient. There's also the possibility that there could be some reinfection from zoonotic sources. So we know that wildlife uh, and, and animals in general can get COVID, and so there may there is some potential for a COVID variant to spread to animals and then to respread back to humans. So to develop a variant that's distinctly different from those in in uh, in current circulation. So that's the source of a game changer. Um, it is less likely that Omicron subvariants are going to be game changers. Persistent problems, yes, a game changer, no. Um, but um, given the history of COVID, um, there is a distinct possibility that we will be facing a new variant that is, is problematic you know, within the year or two. So let's talk about boosters. So first, the three doses of boosters. Well, we know that the third dose is really the charm in terms of ensuring that we are adequately protected from severe disease, hospitalization, and death. Um, this is some information from Hong Kong. We, we know that Hong Kong was, uh, was spared largely uh, from COVID uh, due to their um, uh, their restrictions uh, for most of the pandemic, but has suffered greatly in the Omicron wave. We also know that there is a significant number of people in Hong Kong that are not uh, completely vaccinated and certainly not boosted. So this um, shows uh, severe disease uh, by booster status. Um, it shows that you still have um, good protection as compared to unvaccinated folks um, for those uh, uh, um, who um, who have had two doses. But when you see in the bottom part of this graph, uh, after the booster dose, you have extremely strong uh, protection in all groups. So, um, so, so becoming a real game changer in terms of ensuring uh, everyone has adequate protection from severe disease with Omicron. Um, yet despite this, over 6 million Australians uh, remain unboosted. Uh, and so this is long into our booster program when boosters have been eligible for the majority of folks um, and uh, 6 million remain unboosted. Um, and so here is Australia. Uh, it's actually kind of only around 50% of the whole population, um, but, uh, but considerably more of the, uh, of the eligible population. But what we see from here is that Australia is not alone. So um, even in countries that achieved extraordinarily high vaccination rates, like Portugal with 95% of their population vaccinated, they still have had a much, a, a, a much more of a challenge to actually get people boosted. Um, so Australia is not alone. Uh, in fact, Australia's rate of boosting is relatively high, but it is still disappointing and leaves a lot of people potentially at risk from COVID. And so when you look overall by state, you have, kind of have similar rates of those eligible by states, still about, uh, you know, 20-some 20, 20 to 30% of people not boosted. The one that's different is WA at 85%. So 85% of folks in WA have been boosted. 
Well, why is the uptake so slow? And I think WA demonstrates one thing, that if you require the booster, you're going to get higher uptake. So because the booster is not required in most places in Australia, the uptake isn't optimal. We've also had mixed messages about boosting. So a lot of people heard mixed things about boosting, whether we should or shouldn't, when we should, etc. So I think that that's been challenging for the public to understand, and I'm sure at times challenging for, for you as GPs to keep up with who's actually eligible for a booster at whatever time. We know there's substantial protection with um, two doses, so people may not feel the, 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 the need to be boosted, um, uh, and the framing of Omicron as mild adds to that. People may not see what the benefit to them is of getting the booster. Also, many have been recently infected and are waiting to be boosted um, because, the, because, you know, they or their, their GP has, has told them, rightly so, that they have um, some protection uh, based on being recently infect infected. And then, as always, with vaccination, you have complacency, hesitancy, and access uh, being factors that uh, have led to a slow uptake. Now, one of the important things in terms of the seasonal flu uh, and seasonal flu vaccination, um, remember that all COVID vaccines can be co-administered on the same day as an influenza vaccine. So certainly this is an opportunity. If a patient comes in for their flu vaccine or you're going to administer it, remember that you can give the, um, the, the COVID booster at the same time. Um, so it's a great opportunity to do that. Well, what about the fourth dose? So I'm just going to go over a little bit about um, the newer data with respect to the fourth dose in terms of uh, the demonstrations of its uh, effectiveness. Um, so most of the data that we have is from Israel, where they started uh, the fourth dose um, in January, uh, delivering it to those over 60. And so this is popula a population-based study in Israel looking at um, the severe illness and infections in um, in individuals who were or were not given a um, uh, a fourth dose uh, of uh, of uh, the COVID vaccine versus three doses, and you know in Israel all of this is mRNA. Some of it's Moderna, some of it's Pfizer. The first dose was all Pfizer, and so what we see is that. Um, there is a higher risk of confirmed infection and severe illness in those vaccinated with three doses versus four doses um, after January 2nd. Uh, we also see that um, the uh, confirmed infection, so the, the benefit of the fourth dose on confirmed infection, so um, uh, actually getting COVID, uh, declines fairly rapidly after the fourth dose, so it doesn't seem to have a prolonged effect on transmission, but the effect on severe illness seems to be maintained. So that fourth dose for over 60s does have a prolonged, well, at least past six weeks, uh, impact on, um, on severe illness. This is a second study performed, a vaccine effectiveness study performed in Israel, looking at uh, those over 60 in their largest, uh, Israel's largest healthcare organization comparing individuals who received a fourth dose to those with a third dose, had 180,000 matched pairs. They were followed for 30 days. Uh, and so what they showed was a reduced 68% uh, reduction in hospitalization, a 62% reduction in severe COVID, uh, and a 74% uh, reduction in death from COVID, with an absolute difference in the risk over you know, a fairly short time period uh, of uh, 180 cases uh, with uh, hospitalized uh, for COVID uh, per 100,000 uh, patients after the fourth dose. So it seems clear from this evidence that there is a benefit to the fourth, fourth dose in these individuals over 60.
Now, under 60, it's a little less clear. So this is uh, also an Israeli study in healthcare workers looking at uh, the fourth dose. So this is uh, in um, a cohort of healthcare workers. They've been following about 1,000 of them. And uh, 2,704 received a fourth dose and were compared to those who received three doses only. What they found was that um, the IgG, the antibody titers, um, uh, from the vaccination had declined after three doses after time period. So they were now at you know, over 16 weeks after their third dose, and they showed that the IgG titers had declined. And what happened after a vaccination with the fourth dose is, is these titers were restored. Um, so the titers of uh, IgG were restored to that third uh, dose level um, after the fourth dose, indicating that you do get this boost from the third dose. The fourth dose doesn't boost um, the uh, IgG further, it just returns it to that baseline. Now, in terms of uh, whether these people got infected, um, so they found, and, and these people were regularly screened for COVID, 25% uh, in the co control group were infected with Omicron versus 18% in those receiving the Pfizer fourth dose and those 21% uh, in those receiving the Moderna fourth dose. Um, now, uh, the efficacy appeared to be better for prevention of symptomatic disease, but actually very few of these patients, these uh, healthcare workers developed any kind of severe symptoms. So uh, the impact on actual disease seems less clear. Uh, it does improve the IgG, but uh, it doesn't seem to have a massive impact on disease or um, severe disease in this cohort. Currently in Australia, the ATAGI recommendation is that it's given for adults 65 and older, um, residents of aged care, um, 16 years and older with uh, immunocompromised and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people aged 50 and over. And we know that we've got a long way to go to ensure all of those uh, people have their fourth dose. Um, this was last week, but uh, only about 200,000 people of the many millions who would uh, fit those categories have been boosted. So um, lots of work to be done in that area. And again, it is effective. So going into winter, it is important that those people receive their, their fourth dose. Um, so now let's talk a little bit about treatment. Um, so this is just uh, a little bit of information we have from the Health Ed National GP survey that was conducted in, on April 12th uh, of over 665 GPs. Uh, and what it showed was you are seeing a lot of COVID. So um, about 20 some percent had seen no COVID, um, but really the majority of people, uh, over 70% over, um, of people had seen some COVID and some people were seeing a lot of COVID over 10 patients per week. Um, so that's, that's a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, burden on the healthcare system, new patients to be seen that you would not have had to see, be, see before. So just gonna talk a little bit about uh, the oral therapies. So we know that um, the uh, Levero and Paxlovid, they're recommended for people 65 or older who have risk factors for developing severe disease uh, and 75 or, or older with one additional risk factor. If you're immunocompromised, uh, patients should be started on oral um, uh, antivirals and uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people 50 years or older with two high, uh, high risk factors. So. Those are the clinical criteria. We know it needs to be within five days of symptoms, so it's important for people to be tested quickly and get into the system well, because it is a bit of a system that you have to get into in terms of getting access, particularly to Paxlovid. Um, so this is from New South Wales in terms of looking at criteria. So it takes you through um, that individuals have to have these, um, these two risk factors to be, to be able to get uh, the medications um, from the um, 
uh, access the medications through the stockpile. Um, and it is a relatively um, uh, straightforward process, but still quite a process that people have to do. Um, and um, this is some information from the National um, COVID-19 Clinical Evidence Task Force that you may find useful. Um, so what it does is it takes you through an adult, uh, an adult who presents to you with COVID-19 and to try to determine what kind of treatment you should be giving that patient, if anything, at the current time. So it takes you through an algorithm. It's quite quite detailed, but is actually very useful. And if you want to uh, download this, if you, take, if you take your camera out, you can uh, download this from this, uh, this symbol, uh, and you may find it very useful in your practice. Um, now, what have people been doing um, to date? Well, from the survey, uh, we found that about 4% of people that were surveyed had prescribed Paxlovid, and 22% had prescribed Ligvario. Um, now remember, Paxlovid is the medication um, the, uh, that um, has demonstrated higher efficacy uh, in randomized trials, but has a laundry list of drug interactions. Ligvario has fewer drug interactions, but has a lower efficacy in randomized trials. Neither of these have been done head-to-head, -head, so it's really hard to know in the patient population that they're now being applied to isn't the same as the patient population in trials. So it's hard to know if, if this, these differences will be maintained in the real world, but that is the best evidence we have. So when you look at uh, back to this algorithm, you see um, in the bottom, if you have patients that are eligible for treatments, um, you see in terms of uh, uh, like Vero, Vario, um, it's actually not first line. It's generally should be recommended if previous options are not available. Uh, that is, that Paxlovid would be considered, if it's an option for your patients, to be the preferred treatment. It's not uh, the treatment that has, you're currently prescribing, and that's almost certainly because Paxlovid has not really been available. The good news is Paxlovid will now be available. So Paxlovid will have a PBS listing on May 1st. So this should become the first line if patients are eligible to receive it in terms of preventing severe outcomes from COVID in people within five days of symptoms not requiring oxygen. Now, one of the challenges with Paxlovid is all the drug interactions. So this is a, a tool that you could use um, that allows you to look for, co for interactions. So you type into this uh, website, Paxlovid, you type in uh, a potential drug interaction, diazepam, and then you end up um, getting a recommendation in terms of whether or not you can co-administer those drugs. So very fairly simple way to check. This is a... Um, the uh, website, www.covid19druginteractions.org um, checker. Uh, if you go to University of Liverpool, uh, you can get, uh, and COVID-19, it's pretty easy to find it there as well. Something that might be worth trying to kind of make your life a little bit easier in terms of figuring out who is able to get Paxlovid. One other thing I wanna mention about Paxlovid is rebound. So this is uh, emerging. Um, but it appears that there is a rebound. Uh, some patients may have a rebound of COVID-19 after getting Paxlovid. So they get Paxlovid, they feel better. They even have a negative RAT. 
Uh, and then about 10 to 14 days, they develop more symptoms again and actually have a positive rat. So it's something to just uh, be aware of. Uh, and in fact, when you look at the um, randomized trial of Paxlovid, they did show that some people did seem to, on this study, you know, there are small patients, number of patients in the study compared to the real world getting Paxlovid now, but there did appear in a small number of uh, patients to be this rebound day 10 to 14. So something to watch out for. So now let's just talk a little bit about long COVID. I'm sure all of you are seeing long COVID starting to come into your practice. Uh, and um, uh, I'm gonna give you a bit of information about long COVID, but we have a lot to learn. Um, that's the first caveat uh, I'd like to say. Um, here are the nice guidelines in terms of what long COVID is. So you have acute COVID, which is signs and symptoms of COVID up to four weeks. And then you have ongoing symptomatic COVID, which signs and symptoms from four weeks to 12 weeks. And then you have post COVID-19 syndrome, which is signs and symptoms continuing for more than 12 weeks, not explained by another diagnosis. Now, generally long COVID is considered ongoing symptomatic and post COVID-19 syndrome. So both of these would be uh, consistent with long COVID. This is some recent data from a prospective cohort study of hospitalized patients in the UK uh, and looked at patients who were hospitalized for COVID-19 uh, from March 2020 to April 2021. Uh, it was a multi-center study, well done. They were followed for, for a year. Uh, uh, there was a significant proportion had received mechanical ventilation, so 28%. Uh, so these were sick patients. Um, and what they showed was that um, um, at five months, uh, about 75% continued to have um, symptoms from COVID-19, did not feel that they had completely recovered from COVID-19. Uh, and this didn't really change much uh, after you know, uh, seven more months of, uh, of follow-up. So it's at one year, um, you had slight improvement, but not great improvement in terms of the number of people who had persistent symptoms. Um, they actually looked at inflammatory markers in these patients, CRP, and they compared it from uh, patients with mild, um, mild long COVID to patients with very severe long COVID, and did find that the inflammatory markers in people with severe long COVID, you know, they were higher than the people with mild long COVID, indicating that it's may, there may be an inflammatory uh, component of this. Um, um, a meta-analysis of the global literature, 41 studies quite recently done, showed the pooled prevalence of long COVID at 43% in these studies, although there's a big range, 9% to 81%. Hospitalization does seem to be a risk, so it's more common in hospitalization patient, hospitalized patients, but still seems to be frequent in non-hospitalized patients. Um, Multi-system. Uh, so, uh, you know, we talk about COVID as a respiratory disease. It is not. It is a multi-system disease. So most common symptoms, fatigue, memory problems, dyspnea, and sleep problems. We also know from other studies that over a year after COVID, people have a substantial risk of uh, major morbidity, heart, heart, heart uh, problems, um, and also uh, things like um, uh, coagulation abnormalities. So this is a multi-system problem that people have. Fortunately, it does appear that, um, that vaccination is protective. So this is a, a UK study looking at long COVID um, after uh, first infection. So looked at individuals that were not vaccinated and compared it to those who had had a breakthrough infection. Uh, and what it showed was a substantial reduction um, of long COVID in people who had a breakthrough infection from vaccination, after vaccination. But still, uh, almost 10% of vaccinated individuals had long COVID, so symptoms more than 12 weeks. Um, so indicating that even after vaccination, long COVID remains a major problem.
So a multi-system disease that affects a, a significant proportion of people who get COVID. We don't know in terms of the Omicron wave how many people, what proportion of people will be affected, but certainly it does not seem to be um, zero. And because we've had so many people develop uh, COVID during the Omicron wave, we can expect to have large numbers of patients presenting to us with prolonged symptoms. And managing these patients for the general practitioners is going to be challenging. I think some of the things that are important is we need to know more, so we need more uh, reporting of long COVID because we need to know exactly how common long COVID is and what kind of factors uh, are, are uh, influence it. Currently, we know that women are more likely to get it, patients with obesity more likely to get it, patients who've had more severe disease more likely to get it, patients without vaccination more likely to get it. But we know that even in all the lower risk categories, people still get long COVID. Recognizing long COVID, very important. Patients talk about their diagnostic journey, the fact that they don't know what's wrong with them. They haven't been able to access um, anyone who'd been able to give them information about long COVID. These are, this is early in the pandemic before this is known, but this caused a huge amount of distress to patients. So even just recognizing it can be important. And then obviously we need more research into this disease that's affecting so many people. And it's going to be a major source of, of disability, at least short term. This is from um, U the UK uh, uh, RCPG resources. Um, they have a number of resources for long COVID um, that you may find useful, so worth looking on their website. Obviously, the UK has much more experience with long COVID than we do. They have over a million people currently in the UK with long COVID, which is remarkable uh, and, and a, a very, uh, very tragic. Um, so they have more experience certainly than we do, so worth looking at this. Um, they talk about diagnosis, uh, the initial primary care review, persisting COVID symptoms, how to look for them, make sure you look for red flag symptoms because we know there's an increased severe disease in patients developing cardiac disease, um, uh, coagulatory mal uh, dysfunction um, in the year after a COVID diagnosis. Possible in initial investigation, I think you have to kind of decide what um, the what diagnostic tests are required, depending on those red flags. Um, and then possible outcome, self-management, primary care management, referral to specialist admission to hospital. So um, these are early days in understanding what is a new disease, um, but just to, to tell you that um, we are going to be seeing a lot of long COVID and need to have some type of uh, method of managing your patients as we figure out how better to treat them. So with that, um, thank you very much, and um, um, I hope that you, I hope things uh, settle down and we have a better than expected winter, uh, and that um, that you continue to do well and give out, uh, give uh, the excellence and care to your patients that you are giving. Thank you. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcasts, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. 
log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.